Welcome, one and all, to a little thing we like to call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode that you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hey, folks, welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. You know, in part one of this miniseries, we, de- we decided to call it a miniseries because we thought that was cool. Um, <laughs> we discussed criminal jury trials with multiple defendants. And uh, we're back with part two. But remember that this series was requested by a, lo- a loyal listener, and it's not intended to address any particular trial that may currently be pending in Georgia. But given that there are two monster multi-defendant jury trials pending in Fulton County right now, our judicial hearts go out to our colleagues on that bench. But that's just a coincidence. Yeah. So let's get to it. Part two of our multiple series, multi-episode series on multi-defendants in jury trials. So I'm not sure this this next topic, Tane, is going to be limited to multiple defendant cases, but how to manage conflicts, lawyer conflicts, etc. Judges routinely have significant issues managing lawyer conflicts with scheduling, competing trial dates, et cetera. And I will tell you, I don't think that it's that it's sinister or anything by lawyers. They just have to be in multiple places. But I will tell you, I am aware of some lawyers who have who have sent in notices saying they're unavailables on Tuesdays and Thursdays for two months for quote yeah. personal vacation. <laughs> That's, That's a good day to plan me. your personal vacation. Yeah. So what's the rule, Tane? I mean, we, we, we always think we know the rule. What's the rule dealing with? Um, should I play the sound once you read this? Yeah, absolutely. It's not a statute. Well, but they, we treat uniform these rule. like, yeah, these uniform rules, we treat them like statutes. They're not guidelines, Wade. They're rules. I mean, you know. Yeah. But uh, not uniform. <laughs> not mere suggestions. Uniform Superior Court Rule 17.1 discusses conflicts and how they're to be resolved. And, and an important part of that is as follows. Special set trial, working with other judges with whom lawyers claim conflicts. Um, I, I'm not sure that under Rule 17.1 that a specially set trial receives any greater weight than does a trial calendar. But I think it helps everyone understand that setting a trial on a date certain helps move your trial over other quote-unquote court appearances and other cases. So under Uniform Superior Court Rule 17.1, well, criminal. On. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. I had to. Thanks. I mean, we're, 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 we're giving away wings here. Um, so under Uniform Superior Court Rule 17.1, criminal felony uh, proceedings take precedence over civil actions um, and jury trials control over non-jury matters. Then the rules go on and they say that older cases, like of the same type, prevail over newer cases, except where a speedy trial demand has been filed. That is sort of the high trump card, I guess. No, 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 no. It was a complete accident that I said trump card. It is just the thing that controls over all other things as if there is a speedy trial demand that has been filed. So even right. though the rule team seems straightforward, Seems like it just takes care of all these little things there. I can't tell you the number of scenarios and there's countless really that are presented by lawyers that either stretch or actually confound the rules. Like there's a scenario that nobody anticipated. Did you have that experience as well when you were judging? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many different potential scenarios out there and, and so many lawyers who will seek to 
exploit them for their own purposes. Um, but uh, but that's unfair. I mean, as you said at the beginning, we we require lawyers to be in multiple places at the same time, and that's just not possible. So we do have to have a way of working these out. And one of the ways that that you've kind of suggested, and that I think you know has been the most successful for me in the past is. I'll pop on the telephone and, and call another judge and say, hey, I got this big motions hearing with a whole bunch of defendants and everybody except lawyer B can be there. Uh, and he says he's tied up with you. How about you let me have first dibs and uh, I'll do you a solid another time. And in many occasions, if I won't talk like that, um, <laughs> they'll, they'll agree. They'll agree to do, you know, what I to to let the lawyer go. Have you have you had that? Yeah, same I've had really great success calling judges from all different classes of court and and have clarified which lawyer needs to appear when or what time. My problem is is that when I get lawyers that are that are traveling a great distance to come to me, like from Atlanta, for example, to Columbia County, it's at least a two hour ride, maybe two and a half mm-hmm. one way. They really can't be anywhere else that morning. And it would be hard to believe they'd be anywhere else that afternoon. So basically the judges are able to work it out between themselves where who needs who more urgently than whom. Yeah. So. It, and this may or may not be the best place to talk about this, but but I, I'll just throw it out there, too, because I think this helps. I, I had a because uh, we're all about trying to help judges and, you know, scheduling things and all this. I had a death penalty case, the only one I ever had that had. You know, the typical, I think it had 122 motions in the case or something like that. And, you know, if you've ever done a death penalty case, you know, you, you have to work through all of those motions at some point in time to to make sure that that trial moves along. And what I did at the outset of that case was, I whether the lawyers liked it or not, I don't know, but I specially set a hearing date for motions for this case every month on a date certain. And like I told the first them Monday or the second Tuesday. Yeah, it, or it, well, it was it was the day before my criminal calendar call uh, every month. It was on a Thursday, I think, or a Wednesday. But anyway, they knew every month it was going to be specially set. And in fact, I gave them all the dates a year and a half. I, I mean, a year in advance. I gave. I said we're going to have this hearing on motions on the following dates, specially set until we finish these 122 motions. Did you say lawyer, which motion was going to be heard on which day? What I would do, and the order actually said this, the order said a week in advance, I would tell them which motions we were going to cover on that particular date so that they could be ready for those motions. And then frequently, I'd get their input and say, okay, what what motions can we hear? How many do you think we can hear? Because, you know, some of them are pro forma and you don't have to have a lot of argument. But, but what I'm saying is, given lawyers that kind of certainty on a big case, can sometimes help you move the case along. Say, hey, guys, start ma- managing your schedule because you know every you know third Thursday of the month you're going to have a specially set hearing for me for for motions that are pending on that case on that day. So anyway, that was that's just a thought of, of some way to handle some of those uh, some of those things. And Tane, during those conversations between judges when they're trying to resolve these conflicts, I have yeah. always given a lot of weight to a specially set trial. You, t- you talked about it a minute ago. Absolutely. I, I don't think specially set trial is actually a different category under 17.1. But if, if, if a judge has set a date certain for a trial, and I know that the lawyer's not just going there to make an announcement or, or enter a plea or whatever, then it helps me understand and, and I guess prioritize the significance of that judge's obligation versus what the lawyer has in front of me. 
Yeah, and it also depended. I had a colleague many, many, many years ago who's no longer around on the bench, but who would specially set cases for an entire six-week period of time and say, you're subject to call at, on, on an hour's notice during this entire six-week period of time, which sort of wreaks havoc with your life uh, as Everybody's a lawyer. Everybody's life, yeah. Exactly, when you're subject to one-hour call on a six, for a six-week period. Well, so, anyway, we, we don't do that. Tane has talked about setting deadlines, and if you're specially setting a trial, we suggest that you impose deadlines for certain events to occur, for example, Tane, like discovery. The discovery right. rules in criminal cases say that they have a default, you know, no less than 10 days before trial or whatever, unless otherwise set by the court. And so when you take that stance and you set it and you set it on a date certain, then everybody knows what's expected. I, we, we've had some some of our, our NJO judges holler at us here recently, uh, maybe me more than you, and have asked, um, so what do I do when they just ignore my deadline? Can I exclude the evidence? Should I tell them they can't use this recently discovered evidence that they should have not recently discovered? They should have discovered it months ago. Tane, yeah. did you? I, I struggle with that. I know you struggle with that because sure. we talked about it. Um, I, yeah, and I, I think the rules, you know, it's essentially what the case law and the rules say on that is, you know, exclusion of evidence is the nuclear option. You know, that's the very last resort uh, in terms of what you should do, that you should use whatever lesser penalties are available to you as a trial judge in order to get the compliance that you need and, and short of excluding evidence. And so there are a whole host of things that you can do potentially, um, you know. Short it, of that. Yeah, short of that. So deal with the lawyer, not with the exclusion of evidence. That's sort of been my mantra. Good I'll point. deal with the lawyer. I mean, nobody wants to hold anybody in contempt or anything like that. But at some point you get painted in a corner where you don't have many choices. And but you deal with the lawyer that has has not complied with the rule. And and Tane, if you want to talk about a real callback early in this podcast series, Tane has like third, fourth, fifth episode. We something interviewed like that. Uh, Judge Lamar Sizemore. You remember that? Yeah, I, I certainly do. And, and uh, Judge our, Sizemore gave us some great rules, yeah. and and the, the number one rule, one. Judge. Yeah. yeah, the number one rule Judge Sizemore uh, gave us that I tried never to forget is never forget you were a lawyer. So you know that just kind of means get the benefit of the doubt when you can on these things. I mean, uh, we were lawyers too. Things happen. Stuff you know falls through but cracks. But by or God, whatever. I'm the judge, Tane, and they ignored my order. Yeah, well, you're still the same guy you were, Wade, before you put on that robe. So uh, let's not forget that. If a lawyer has a reasonable excuse for missing a deadline, listen to it. Take it into consideration. On the other hand, if you're if you get the perception that the lawyer's intentionally ignoring your deadlines, then deal with the lawyer, not with the evidence. Agreed. So let's move on and, and talk a little bit about logistics, Wade. Um, you know, we learned a lot of stuff during COVID. Yeah, I, um, picked some a good, some... I picked a jury in the James Brown arena. I remember. Good guy. Um, I, <laughs> I, jury. I picked a jury and we, we took over the arena. I mean, that's not plan A post-COVID. <laughs> no. But, um, Put up one of those big Cirque du Soleil tents out yeah. in the courthouse parking lot. Yeah, it's not lot. very hot or anything. So that's that not at all. Lovely. 
Yeah. Um, Tane, I have known in a long trial, talking about logistics just generally, I've known that ju judges that they established a four day work week for the jury so that they were going to take, I don't know, Wednesdays off or Fridays off or whatever. Yeah. So, and I've known other judges, for example, that went all week and Saturday and Sunday trying to right. get the jury their life back. I have, I'll be honest with you, I've kind of done both. What about you? Yeah. I, you know, for me, the watchword was always this. I wanted the jury to know ahead of time what I was going to do. I don't think it's, I don't think it's bad form to work late. If you've told the jury, you're going to work late, you know, and the I don't bailiffs think it's, and the court reporter. And, yeah, and everybody. The... Yeah. And, and so, so my, my watchword was always at the beginning of trial, I was going to try to estimate longer than I thought trial was realistically going to take and tell them to plan for that. And then I would say, look, folks, we're going to go till 530 every day. But some days we may go later than that. But if we are going to go later, you'll know at least 24 hours in advance so that you can make arrangements for childcare and for dinner and for all of those things. Um, you know, and, and because my job, I would tell the jury, my job is to keep this train running on time for, to get you out of here by the date that I told you I was going to get you out of here. So I'll manipulate the schedule accordingly, but I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm not going to say, hey, tonight we're staying until seven. I know I told you we're finishing at 530, but, you know. Sorry about your birthday yeah. uh, or your spouse's, your boo. You know, I'm sorry about their birthday. Uh, so anyway, All right. uh, so I, that, this, that was my watchword. And that does give me one thing that we should have said in the outline that I did not write in the outline. And that is this. Be careful when you tell people how long trials are going to last. I think you better be careful to say that evidence presentation is going to end by here because you don't, there's no limit on how long they can deliberate. And you don't want to give a false impression that they have a, they're on some sort of clock. Agreed. Yeah. So just try. Yeah. I mean, it's just lazy language, but try to use evidence presentations only going to last till here, as opposed to the trials only going to last till here. Sure. Agreed. So that raises this issue of court reporters, Tane, and you maybe have done this differently than I did. Do you expect them to take down eight eight to ten hours of testimony every day, all day? And what if that court reporter gets sick or has a family emergency? Did you ever have sort of a, a backup plan on court reporters? I, 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 I did in the sense that I would talk to them about what happens, you know, in that circumstance, because I mean, yeah, if you if your court reporter can't be there to take things down, we're done. You know, it's sort of like, if you can't be there, I mean, there, there's not much way around that. And so I would try to make sure that we had somebody to back up. I was lucky in my jurisdiction that we had a, a group of folks who were called the floater court reporters who were just kind of there they were always busy. We almost always had them in court doing something, but there was always somebody there to back up if we had a, you know, it was kind of the fail safe if something blew up one day. But but I always wanted to make sure, yeah, that we had somebody. And, and again, I mean, it's tough to report, you know, eight, 10 hours in a row. I mean, I've seen court reporters whose hands, you know, just look like they were, uh, uh, you know, had arthritis yeah, because they had been taking stuff down all those hours of the day. So you got to be sympathetic to that. So Tane, talk to the folks a little bit about how you sort of changed during Vordire about identifying jurors. And, yeah. and, and that was something that I have tried to adopt and, and still working with trying to get just right. But used to be jurors would stand up and say, my name's Joe Smith. I live on Green Street, maybe not the street address, but I live on Green Street and blah, blah, blah. You changed that. Yeah, we, I, I, you know, I, and I don't even remember wh where I heard it or when I, but somebody talked about using a number instead of a name. And I thought, you know what, that's brilliant because the only question I ever had from a jury after a trial was about whether the criminal defendant could identify them 
you know, and I mean, sadly, it's fairly easy to get people's names and addresses off a jury list, but uh, it made them feel so much better when we went to the idea of using juror numbers. And so the way we did it was fairly simple and and extremely um, analog, uh, old school, I guess. Um, we made some cards. Uh, they were color coded uh, index cards, basically, that were probably about four inches by six inches or maybe a little bit bigger than that. And we wrote numbers on them. This is how we started out. And um, each juror uh, would be given their, you know, their corresponding number. In fact, they were lying in the seat when the juror comes in to to be uh, you know, questioned in Bordar. And in response to all the questions, we would just have them hold up their juror number. And rather than using the names, we would ask the lawyers to use their number when they were questioning them. And the thing that we learned, in addition to making the jurors feel better, and they liked it a lot, is it was much more efficient, particularly when we were doing general questions. They would hold up their number and I would call out the numbers. I would say, OK, uh, lawyers, we have number two, number three, number seven. And the lawyers could just write down the number uh, in, you know, in making their notes. And it was incredibly efficient and much, much faster to do that. Now you can get fancier than that. You can, you know, have a little paddle or something that they hold up. I've seen people do. If so, you know, feel free to put a little advertising on the back. Judge Kell, Superior Court Judge, Room 7100. You got to get elected. I mean, you know, put your name out. Now don't put, please reelect judge. Yeah. Hey, don't, don't, do, don't go that far, but you put your name on them, you know, make sure people remember so whose courtroom they there are, there are, I don't know if this is only unique to a relatively small jurisdiction compared to Cobb, but there are family names that you want to know. Would the lawyers have access to the defendant's names at all? Um, yeah. Well, you, you're talking about the jurors' names. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what yeah. I meant. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when the when the jurors come in for voir dire, the lawyers get a list of everybody's name and their juror number. So they're not they're not working blind. They know their name, whatever little bit of information is on the juror um, sheet, which I generally found out was either incorrect or, um, you know, not good. So we always ask those questions again. But but yeah, I mean, they the the lawyers would certainly have their names and and would know and could ask them those questions. Are you related to so and so or, you know, whatever. So now you're probably going to have a juror questionnaire in this multi-defendant trial that you're looking at. Uh, think about how you want to cultivate that. If you want, if it has to have unique questions, if you can save some time and effort by putting some of the basic biographical information of the jurors down on a questionnaire, just make sure you take them back up so they don't leave with them. And that way people don't have access to people's streets or work or whatever. Now, what did you do about sick jurors? I mean, you got this big case about to crank up and talk about things like sick jurors and, and how you might have, for example, the the rules say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm telling you to talk about something. Now I'm going to talk about something. Um, <laughs> the rules say- It's more efficient that way. You can't give the jurors anything other than water bailiffs without the court's permission. Well, the court has decided that it's a good idea to have a pot of coffee and some crackers and chips in the jury room. Yeah. Some sodas, maybe. I mean, we do that for our jurors just so that they have some something other than water that, that all, whenever we take a break, they can go, they can go to the restroom, they can grab a pack of crackers, they can whatever. And it seems to make things a lot better. The jurors seem to really appreciate it. It doesn't cost yeah. much. It's just something we do in our circuit. I would periodically go out and buy 
some snacks. I mean, I did it myself just so I wouldn't have to go through the hassle of trying to get, you know, funding or whatever for, but I would just buy these snacks and we had them in a big bowl or, mm -hmm. you know, several big bowls in the, in the jury room and, and they were free to have those. But you got to think about those kinds of things ahead of time. And, and another thing, other things that you need to think about are, um, I, I mean, like from what, once I had a juror who was breastfeeding and, you know, I had to make sure that we stopped periodically during the trial for however you know long we needed to just to make sure we could accommodate that and we had a you know quiet place that was secured and all of that the juror could go to um you know you may have a juror who needs to eat on a at a regular time because they're diabetic or or something along those lines you got to think about those things and you got to accommodate those kinds of things because you know everybody has an opportunity to be on the jury i mean they you know, with certain exceptions. And so you need to be aware of those things. Did you ever like make the jury go to lunch together or bring in lunch? I mean, you might bring in lunch while they're deliberating, but did you routinely like have bailiffs accompany people to lunch and buy their lunch and that kind of stuff? I, I did not. Um, I, I know people who do. I, I felt like they need a break from each other in the middle of the day. And this is before we get to deliberations, obviously, but I felt like it was great to send the jury out for, and I usually tried to give them an hour and a half, unless we were on a tight deadline or I we needed too. to really tighten things up. I try to give them an hour and a half because by the time you walk from the courthouse to someplace to eat, stand in line, get your food, eat it, and get all the way back through security. And maybe in the make a phone call to the office of the house. Yeah, or whatever, call I mean. your call your home and find out if the kids have you know killed grandma or whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, so so I tried to do that too. So. Yeah, I mean, plan your trial accordingly for those kinds of things. We're we're going to have an episode coming up uh, with with one of our buddies who's now senior judge, Jim Boniford, and Jim's going to tell us a little bit about trying high profile cases, and those are usually longer cases, you know. And so uh, he's going to talk about some of these kinds of things about how you treat your jurors right uh, in a case like that, even in some cases where he had sequestered juries, which well, I can't wait to ask him some questions yeah, I, about. I strongly advise against that. Most lawyers now are starting to realize it's an error to sequester a jury, but when you have yeah. to, you have to. Back in the day, yeah. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Yeah. So you got your multi-defendant trial. It's going to be a big, long thing early in the process. Get with your local court administrator or DCA if you only have a DCA. And during that meeting, here are some issues we think you ought to if discuss. If you're fortunate probably, enough to have a DCA. Well, you should have a DCA. You may not have a local court administrator. Just meant they're pretty special people. They are special people. Here's a list of issues that we think you should discuss. This is not exhaustive. These are things for you to write down and then maybe expand on. Uh, Tane, let's just read them alternative, alternately. You want to? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, the first one we start out with is just courtroom space for the expected length of the trial. Where are you going to be? Second, security for everybody involved, jurors, witnesses, parties, lawyers, et cetera. Yeah, and, and you, for obvious reasons, need to get you know your sheriff involved in that discussion, your bailiffs involved in that discussion, all the appropriate people. Um, and then parking, you know, parking issues, if that's going to be something that needs to be addressed. Having court reporters, as discussed previously. Media attention, things like what's required by Rule 22, and we've done a, a podcast on that as well. All issues relating to a jury, the selection process, how many you're going to bring in during the day, in the morning, in the afternoon, during the trial itself, how you're going to accommodate them during the trial. Yeah. And again, we've addressed that in a previous podcast and also in our series on how to try a, a criminal trial. Um, you should also talk about how to maintain an open courtroom or potentially things like how to live stream into another courtroom if you need more space or how to accommodate people who might want to watch the trial or be present. Num number eight on this list is any other issues that may be relevant to your case. For example, if we've had a multiple, multiple defendant trial, we don't really have seating in the courtroom for more than two or three defendants and their lawyers. So you may have to move furniture. You may have to bring in desk. You may, and you got to work with security where they're okay with people sitting. Um, if defendants are in custody, you might need to separate them, or if you're going to bring in a witness who might be testifying against the other co-defendants, that's going to require coordination. And then make sure your evidence presentation system is operational. This is the curse of the pageant division of any court I've ever been a part of. Um, or you know, you know those systems are bought on low bid, right? Way yeah, and they, you know, they, they state act, they contracting act like it. only on trial days. Every other days it work fine. Or right. choose to tell the lawyers to bring their own equipment if using the system in installed in your courtroom won't work. If you are going to use your system, schedule an education day for the lawyers so they can learn the system and that everybody can be operating under the same sheet of music, I guess. Yeah, and I, I let them know at the pretrial uh, conference or with the closest, you know, at, at the closest date to trial, you can come in and practice this with this equipment on such and such a date. Uh, because I've I'm been the lawyer. I'm not going to be in court that day or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been the lawyer who's had a malfunctioning, you know, whatever at VCR back in the day, and it ain't fun. So um, it, you probably ought to develop an instruction sheet for jurors, both prior to trial, you know, in the in the voir dire process, and for the ultimate trial itself, and tell the tell the folks what kind of things ought to appear on that sheet thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, things like where the jurors are supposed to park during trial and. Uh, how to contact the court if they're sick or if they have an issue, you know, an emergency that comes up or uh, every day where they're supposed to assemble and are, are bailiffs going to meet them somewhere and bring them into and away from the building to avoid, you know, members of the public or those sorts of things. What else, Wade? Deal with the lunch hours and what your trial schedule is going to be. We've talked about that and get them some snacks and soft drinks or coffee. They're going to appreciate it. We've talked about that. Consider what, and I know this sounds crazy, but in today's day and time, it, it is important. If you're going to do that, you may also want to ask if anybody has any dietary issues or any allergies. You know, I know gluten. peanut allergies are a big one nowadays and that sort of thing. Be, be careful of that thing, that sort of thing, too. Consider what you're going to do as another issue. Consider what you're going to do if you have a defendant that acts out in the courtroom. You know, we can't use really the, the closed circuit thing. And, and for Sixth Amendment concerns, there's some cases cited. Just know that we're going to have that future episode with Judge Botter we've talked about. But you need to start thinking about these things early on in your multi-defendant case. That's right. So 
All right. Let's move on to uh, another issue because this one, I think, comes up from time to time. How do you handle the situation where a co-defendant, sometimes in the middle of trial, but but even before trial, um, takes a guilty plea and then, quote unquote, flips, changes, you know, what they're changes, what side they're on? Tane, you and I have never really talked about this with any degree of 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 certainty. So I don't know really what you're going to say here. I think they're different schools of thought. Whether you take the plea and sentence the defendant, then that person testifies, or the defendant, I guess, tenders a plea, you accept it, and then wait to announce sentence until after the defendant has testified. Tane, there is a unique Georgia law that I'm not sure everybody fully knows. Until sentence pronounced, what can the defendant do, Tane? Yeah, they can always withdraw that plea. So if you take the plea, and I'm using air quotes, the defendant testifies, somebody's not satisfied with how they testified. The defendant gets acquitted, the, the defendant on trial, the, the the flipper defendant, not to be confused with the porpoise, but the flipper com- defendant, now it says, you know what, now I want a trial. Yeah. So and it, it, it can happen. I think it's a problem. And, and I, I don't think everybody sort of appreciates that. So if the defendant has been sentenced, Tane, and then uh-huh. becomes forgetful, and I'm going to use that word at trial. The state can move to set aside that plea agreement or that sentence if the trial court finds that the defendant lied at the trial of a co-defendant, assuming the case was already sentenced under one of those two options. Which way did you normally see it happen? Did they sentence and then if they don't if they back up, redo it, or did they tender a plea and then await sentencing after the trial? I was a lot more comfortable with go- just going ahead and doing sentencing. I, I just, there was just something I, I, that felt to me, and, and this is not the case law. It doesn't say you can't do this. There was just always something that to me felt uncomfortable, almost that I was participating in something that was actually happening between the state and the defendant by holding the sentencing and, and, and not sentencing them until later or, or or something like that. And so I was more comfortable doing that way. I think, I think on one occasion, uh, the state got, you know, for whatever reason, got me to, to hold off on sentencing until a later time. Uh, if you I, know, I usually do what the prosecutors want to do on that, but I just, mm-hmm. I've never understood what bird in hand to in Bush. And, and so I, I think that if you get the plea on the one, you've got a sentence, it's done. And right. but 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 if we want to hold it over their heads to make sure they testify the way we want to, then you might end up with two trials and you didn't know you were going to have to try this twice. So right. anyway, I think just know that that usually with these, there is a proffer involved that the, that the flipping defendant somehow is questioned and, and, and there's sort of locked into a statement under oath. Remember, under oath. And then. Under, I believe, Brady and Giglio, you're going to have to, this prosecutor is going to have to reveal that proffer and what the deal is to the remaining defendants. Agreed. Jury strikes. Right. Yeah, let's talk about jury strikes. This, way. this we, is we a little, sit, bit, we're gonna, little bit easier. Yeah. Georgia law is in a felony jury trial in which the death penalty is not an issue. The defendants, regardless of number, are to jointly exercise the nine peremptory strikes. You want to see a fist fight? <laughs> Get nine people who are blaming each other for the crime to jointly exercise strikes. You can do that, Judge, but yeah. you are also authorized to apportion the strikes 
among the defendants. Now, Tane, I don't know if you remember this cold. Do you remember how many strikes you get in a felony jury trial? It seems like somewhere around nine, Wade, if I'm not, somewhere in the neighborhood of nine. But again, all of that changed after I got on the bench. The yeah. number of strikes for the state, uh, you know, when I first- used to be 20 and 10 and, and all that. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it was all, it was all jacked up. And so, so anyway, nine strikes per side. So if you have it, two defendants, Tane, how do you, I, I, we don't want to do math here on the Good Judgment Podcast. You got to agree on one. <laughs> don't know. That <laughs> is not the four. law. That you is not the law. <laughs> Um, no, but, but you, so you, Tane, what would you, what would you do if you have nine? So you also have the right as a trial judge to, to, to grant additional strikes to the sides. And so if I had a case where I had two defendants, I would consider, uh, particularly if the lawyers indicated to me that they didn't think they were going to be able to agree on strikes, um, that, just adding a strike, just give them 10, give the prosecution 10, let them each have five and, and apportion the strikes that way. Now, Tane, the, the, there is case law that says giving one juror, one defendant five and the other four is not a problem. Um, and we've got all that in the outline, but I want you to listen to what the statute specifically says, because this is going to be important. Upon proper request of the defendants, the court shall allow an equal number of additional strikes to the defendants, not to exceed five each as the court shall deem necessary to the ends that justice may prevail. The court may, notice first time I said shall, now I'm saying mm -hmm. the court may allow the state additional strikes not to exceed the number of additional strikes allowed to the defendants. So the plain reading of that statute says shall and may, it, that if the court must grant additional strikes to the defendants being tried, tried jointly, but has discretion as to whether to give the state any additional strikes. I always tried to make them even between the state and the defendant. So if that meant I had to qualify a whole lot more people to, to strike the jury, then I had to qualify a whole lot more people. Did you do the same? Yeah. And it only came up, quite frankly, I think in one case uh, over the whole time I was trying. Uh, but I didn't do a whole lot of multi-defendant cases uh, all the way to trial and, and picking jury and all that. So, um, but yeah, I, I think that's, I, I would probably feel compelled uh, in most cases, to just give the state and the defendants the equal number of strikes and just qualify a whole bunch more jurors. And we've and we've talked about you know if you had nine strikes for a felony, you could give one five and the other four. But if you give one additional strike to each side, each party would have five, and then you give the state one additional one. The possibilities are endless, really. Um, how long, only really the only limitations is your imagination and how long you want to spend in jury selection. Now, right. alternate jurors, Tane, and I've got a confession to make about this. Alternate jurors are governed by a different code section, OCGA 15-12-169.1. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. That code section specifically allows the trial judge to determine the number of alternate jurors. Right. When, when then, when there are multiple, and the statute says, when there are multiple co defendants, the number and manner of exercising peremptory challenges is determined as set forth in 1784, which was the statute we just talked about, about between apportioning or sharing. So I presided over a six defendant trial, went for 15 trial days. When we got to the subject of alternate jurors, lead counsel, because there was one lawyer that was clearly lead counsel on that. He advised that, Judge, we know that we have to share the one strike per alternate. 
I can't find that in the law. I still can't <laughs> find it in the law. But I will I will tell you, I was rather happy with that answer given the number of jurors we had already qualified. So in well, candor, 1784 it, says you they have to be shared unless you decide to apportion them. So I exactly. think you, I think you can rely on the plain language of 1784 and say, I'm going to apportion as to the main jury. I am going to order that you share as to the alternate. I think so too. I, I think I mean that makes sense to me to default to that language because I think that is the appropriate default. <laughs> but it's going to be really bad when you see the defendants over there doing rock, paper, scissors to figure out who gets to determine the alternate juror, you know. How many alternates hang on, did you? Hang on, Judge. We're, all, hang on, Judge, we're almost through. we got two papers. <laughs> two out of three. Yeah, um, best two out of three. How many – did you have any rules, just not rules, but just practices that you had about how many alternates you'd use? Yeah, except during COVID, my rule was if, it, if it's five days or less trial, I usually would have one alternate juror if it was more than five days, two, or if it was going to be even longer, maybe three. Uh, during COVID, I always had a minimum of two jurors. Uh, if it was going to go three or four days, I mean, I just you just never knew what was going to happen with that. Um, understanding, I mean, you, you have to, don't forget, guys, if some juror gets sick, you can always pause, you know, the trial and 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 recommence when the juror gets better. I had a had a juror one time whose father went to the hospital and. We ended up excusing her, but I mean, we could have just stopped and waited and seen if she could come back the next day or, you know, days later, whatever. You can, you can always do that. All right. Let's leave jurors. Let's very yeah. quickly touch closing arguments. Tame, we have recorded a whole episode on closing arguments, and I'm honestly not sure if it's going to be released after this one or before this one. But so we, we talk about the content of closing arguments, so we're not going to do that again. Just yeah. quick reference. There are time limitations, Tame. Yeah. Just, just remember those time limitations, folks. Um, for, for felony cases, and these are in the, uh, these are in the uniform, uh, superior court rules, uh, for felony cases punishable by the death penalty or life in prison, two hours each side for any other felony case, one hour each side for misdemeanor cases, 30 minutes each side. Now, wait, the, the magic question is each side or each defendant in a multi-defendant case? Well, I hate to tell you, but it means per defendant. Yeah. And so the state is limited to two hours if it's a death penalty or life and where life is a potential sentence or for all other felonies, one hour. Now, that means per defendant. We're not going to spend any time discussing the nightmare, where, which result in a five to ten defendant co-defendant jury trial where each lawyer spends one to two hours in closing arguments. Can you imagine being the lawyer for the fourth or eighth defendant? And <laughs> Number 27. No, no, no. I heard what they said about what reasonable doubt means. Let me give you my analogy. I mean, right. oh, my God. Um, Let me just repeat everything every other lawyer has said before me. I adopt me. what they said, and now here's what's wrong with JoJo's case. Um, just remember there are time limitations. You can put them out there. The judge has the discretion to extend those time limits, provided that request comes before arguments begin. You can't you can't request after they begin. But let's, Tane, let's start wrapping this one up. Let's get to jury sure. instructions and verdict forms. And I cannot imagine, Tane, and you and I have spent a lot of time talking to NJO judges about verdict forms, but I cannot imagine a case where a properly crafted verdict form could be more important than in a multi-defendant criminal trial. Yeah, we've we've emphasized the importance of thinking about these ahead of time, both for the judge and for lawyers and everybody else. But 
Frankly, some of the appellate decisions have placed a great deal of weight on the fact that each defendant had a separate verdict form, thereby ensuring that the jury considered the evidence against each defendant separately and independently. And I, I mean, I think that's a, a brilliant idea. You slap all the defendants on the same form and you are inviting confusion by the jury because they don't know these people. I mean, they just got introduced to their names and, you know, the the alleged conduct and all of that. I, I think the cases have been instructive, even though they haven't necessarily specifically said it. But I think it, having a separate form for each defendant makes a whole lot of sense. And this is particularly true where all the defendants are not all charged with the same defendant, same crime. Right. So, for example, right. assume that all the defendants are charged with the offense of conspiracy to commit murder, but only one defendant, for some reason, is charged with like the, the felony murder counts, possession of firearm, et cetera. But the other defendants are charged with something like a false statement or perjury or possession of cocaine. I mean, in that context, it would be vitally important for each defendant to have a well-crafted and independent verdict form where that defendant's name appears as in the style of the case, the charges against that defendant only are the only ones that appear, and then, Tane, we get to the joy of a lesser-included offense charge. Right, and we've talked about this in other episodes and how important this is to consider, uh, certainly as the trial judge who's crafting a, a verdict form, but you know, for example, count five, you want to put down, uh, we, the jury, find the defendant John Doe and then blank, guilty of trafficking in meth or blank, guilty of possession of meth with intent to distribute or blank, not guilty. Why? So that you give the jury an equal opportunity to consider each and every one of those verdicts um, in considering what happens with count five with respect to that defendant. And during your jury instruction, you tell the jury that as to each count, there should only be one box completed. I don't care what box it is, but only one. That also prevents you from having that make sure that the that the jury considers the charges against each defendant separately, which you're required to talk about during your jury charge, as we will talk about in a minute. And that the jury does not fit to find the defendant guilty of two offenses that somehow conflict. And now you've got to do this whole, all right, if they're guilty of voluntary and murder, this there's a whole modified merger rule that we don't want to talk about. But there's a whole lot of stuff that you can solve by a well-crafted verdict form. That's right. Now, and, let's and talk about jury charges, Tane. Let's do. Um, I think it's really important um, for you to consider those in a multi-defendant case, things like, um, I'm just going to give you some examples of some things that you might consider, or we'll give you some examples of things you might consider having in, in, in a multi-defendant case, just because they're going to be of importance. Uh, number one, something like the limiting instruction for confession of one defendant or for a limiting instruction for any 404B evidence. I, I would say to you, anytime you give a limiting instruction, just consider that you're going to give it again in the final instructions to the jury. You're going to remind them of the limiting instruction that you gave. I think that's always a good rule of thumb. What else, Wade? You got to charge the jury. They they are to consider each charge individually against each defendant separately and make an independent verdict for each charge and as to each defendant. Consider telling the jury, for example, that a finding of guilt as to any one defendant does not mandate a similar finding as to any other defendant. Yeah, good point. Tell them also to consider mere association, mere presence, charges uh, carefully. And uh, I'm sorry, you as the judge should consider mere association and mere presence charges carefully and give them if requested. I, I mean, again, those were fairly standard for me to give in a case, particularly if there was more than one defendant. I might give case. them if they're not requested. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 they were part of my standard 
uh, jury charges that I would just tell the guys, the, the lawyers, hey, I'm going to give these unless you object to them. And I'm also going to give party to a crime in any multi-defendant case, regardless of whether it's requested. Absolutely. I would too. So, Tane, that's all for our mini episodes dealing with a multi-defendant criminal trial. Awesome. And uh, folks, look out for future episodes where we're going to be dealing with um, how to handle things like high-profile trials, as we said, and, and other fascinating, we like to think, topics. Um, we're going to get some expert guests lined up uh, to bring you some topics that we think will be both interesting and timely. So uh, we always try to be on the cutting edge, right, Wade? We are very much cutting edge. But we need to leave you with a couple of things. Send us emails at goodjudgepod.com, hopefully full of praise. Yeah, and uh, also look for this episode outline on goodjudgepod.com, uh, our website. So with, with that, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And now the thing you've all been waiting for, our trivia, fact of the day. Finally, you know, I love Athens, Georgia for a lot of different reasons, but the classic city is well known for its music world, really largely spawning a couple of bands in particular, uh, the B-52s. And of course, the legendary R.E.M. Today's music trivia is based on those two iconic bands who were there in Athens when I was there, Wade. I mean, I remember them both in their heyday. The B-52s lived in the little pink house across from Dunkin' Donuts uh, over on Millage. Uh, R.E.M. played for free on Legion Field my sophomore year of college. And I was supposed to be working in the dorm and I abandoned my post. The statute of limitations has run on this. I abandoned my post that night and I went and saw the free concert on Legion Field instead of working uh, at the desk like I was supposed to be. So anyway, uh, the B-52s had a couple of monster hits. Of course, Love Shack and Rock Lobster. Which of those two songs appeared on their debut album? Anybody know? Rock Lobster. Uh, so what year did Love Shack get released? This is an important one. Um, what, what year? You give up? I'm going to say 1980. I didn't look, wait. I'm going to say 1982. Oh, wow. Not until 89. So I was way off on that. Um, so for the crossover question, which member of the B-52s sang on R.E.M.'s monster hit, Shiny Happy People? That, that one's pretty easy. That's uh, Kate Pearson. Uh, she was uh, that wonderful high voice in the background. Didn't on that. she have the bouffant? Like yeah, the she was hair? the one with a, with a big, awesome bouffant. So. Uh, now to some R.E.M. Tr uh, trivia. Michael Stipe, who I saw in The National one time when I was there uh, having some dinner with some friends, and one of my group interrupted him, and he... He, he put my guy in his place for interrupting his dinner, which I didn't mind. I thought he was perfectly justified for that. Uh, but anyway, um, he's the godfather of another famous musician's child. Michael Stipe is. Who was the father of that child for whom Michael Stipe was the godfather? Anybody? Kurt Cobain's child. Um, what's her? Bean. Something. Francis Bean Cobain. Uh, yeah. Uh, and um, So you knew that? I did. Uh, R.E.M. was not the original name for the band. Now, I did not know this, Wade. Do you know what the original name was, folks? Twisted Kites. You know, I got to tell you, R.E.M. is more cool than that. Um, I can't imagine feeling the same way I do about R.E.M.'s music if their name had been Twisted Kites. I got to be honest with you. Folks, there's so much more that we could know about these monster bands, but 
we don't have time for right now, but we might revisit this topic again for a future episode. So join us as always on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try our best to give you actionable information, but in a format that does not make you want to hurt yourself. Two thoughts. Some topics allow us the latitude to be a little bit more fun. Number two, if we failed you, we will try to do our best to do better in the next episode. We know that you have lots of choices and we're honored that you chose us this time. We're kind of amazed to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former director, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law, my new part-time employer. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises all along, but we didn't, so... Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges all across Georgia. Wade and I are also grateful to the State Justice Institute who allow us to do this through their generosity. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, SJI, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact someone else with your complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Please visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all our episode outlines and more details about our podcasts. Some of you send emails asking for copies of the outlines. Seriously, people, they're available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. And we say that like 20 times during every broadcast. But seriously, you can upload or download or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule and at your convenience. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.